Great, good morning. And yeah, we're carrying on with our 365. So we've looked at our our mission statement, living out faith, hope and love in our community. And now we're moving on to the first of our values, which is story. And we've already heard some amazing, really exciting stories this morning. But um, why is story a... Um, a value and what does it mean as a value and I think what we're what we're looking at within story is this idea that we are part of this bigger story um, that um, we are as individuals are part of this church as a church we're part of the church in Yeovil as a church in Yeovil we're part of the church in the UK as a church in the UK we're part of the church globally we're part of this bigger story and we're also part of a story that it has this trajectory across time, right from the beginning of all things, um, and it, and the story that we are told in Scripture carries on, and the cross is a central point of that story, but the trajectory flows beyond until all things are restored and renewed, and we are living, therefore, in that story. And so this morning I want to look at the story that we live in, and... Um, and that's a little bit about the big story, but also about what story do we live in, um, in our own lives. I found this quote the other day um, from a book by Donald Miller, who's an author, lives on the West Coast of America, writes some really good books. Um, and this was a quote in one of them. It says, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie of, or go home and put a record on to think, about how, to think about the story that you'd seen. The truth is you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except that you'd feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and we expect our lives to be meaningful But the truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a meaningful life either. What do we choose to do with our lives? What's the story that we want to tell in our lives? You know, if we just want a life of comfort, if we want a life where we get that job promotion or we we succeed at that thing by whatever measure of success we think we buy into. That's not actually going to be a very exciting story, and therefore it's not going to be a very meaningful life. You see, the story you live in defines your behaviour. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we, we all have a narrative that we live in of what's important, of what success means, of what is meaningful in our lives, of, of who we are, what's possible for us, or um, what the, our point of being here is. We have stories that are kind of told us, that are things that maybe are spoken over us, that can kind of limit us. Or, you know, if, if you live a story that says, well, I just need to be comfortable, I need to be happy, well, then you'll just spend your life trying to achieve things that make you comfortable and happy and finding that none of them actually make you comfortable or happy. But if you live live in a story that says, 
or you're not good enough, or you're only good enough if you achieve the best things and the most, the highest, you go to the best universities and get the best jobs and whatever, well then you'll send your life striving and striving and striving to be good enough and never actually hitting the mark of what is good enough. If you live in a story that says you're not lovable, then you'll spend your life pursuing love and making all sorts of choices to try and earn that love. Often quite destructive. You see, the story that we live in defines our behaviour. And that's true of the story that we live in in relation to the gospel as well. You may have heard me talk to before about the Titanic gospel. When I, was, um, when I grew up in church, when I became a Christian, the, the gospel as it was portrayed to me as such at that point was, well, you know, the earth was created, all creation was created perfectly and it was beautiful and there was, and there was this perfection. And then, and then very quickly into the story, by chapter 3 of the first book of the Bible, everything went wrong and man sinned and we uh, turned away from God and we wanted to be independent and we were rebellious and therefore that sin came into the world and therefore we're all born with this sinfulness and, and so really this, this thing that was perfect has very quickly gone wrong and it's just sinking like the Titanic created beautifully and perfectly and very quickly into its first voyage it went badly wrong and it's just sinking and so we're all trying to get in the lifeboats And so we're all just trying to be saved. And then we're trying to grab the last few people to be saved before the whole thing goes down. And I'm not saying there's no truth in that story, but it's a small gospel. See, it kind of just leads us to this idea of, well, we're just waiting to be evacuated. This is a theology that says, well, you know, God's going to come again. He's going to save it before the whole earth gets destroyed. And he's going to take a few of us, those of us who believe, those of us who are in the lifeboats, those of us in the churches. He's going to take us off to heaven. And then everything else and everyone else is going to be destroyed. And the world is doomed and the world is bad. And we're just trying to save these last few. But, but that can kind of lead us to being quite precious about who else is in our lifeboat. We don't want people who are going to rock the boat. We want to make sure that people believe the right things and behave the right way. And we don't want anyone coming in here who's going to compromise our lifeboat at all. And so, well, we'd rather they just went somewhere else. And, you know, you might want to try that lifeboat over there or that church over there. We don't know whether they're going to be saved or not, but we know that we are. And we can become very small and very parochial. And and then we just kind of bob around in our lifeboats waiting to be evacuated making sure that we stay within the confines of the lifeboat because someone's going to come back and save us. It's not a, very, it's not a great story, is it? But when I read the Bible, what I see is this holistic gospel, a much bigger story that says that the world is God's creation and God's beauty, God's character, God's nature is revealed throughout all of creation. And that this story that we see, this, this disconnection that we see happening right at the beginning in Genesis 3, this disobedience and this um, rebellion and this, and this disconnection is between us and God and this disconnection between us and each other, our relationships are broken and our relationship with God is broken and within ourselves our identity is broken somehow. We're disconnected within ourselves or we've kind of lost sense of who we are and our relationship with creation is broken and so we, 
we kind of make creation work for us and we control it and we abuse it and we yeah we don't look after it very well but and we believe and the story that I see is that from that point on throughout the rest of the scriptures through to the cross through to the resurrection and then beyond to today the whole purpose that Jesus lays out is that he wants to restore and renew all things New heaven and new earth. Heaven and earth restored together. Each of us restored in our relationship with God. Each of us restored in our relationships and in our communities. Each of us restored within ourselves and that sense of identity and who we are and who we're created to be and who we're called to be. And each of us restored in our relationship with our creation. And, and that all things are restored and renewed. And every one of us is precious and is an image bearer of God. And therefore reveal something of what God is like to the people around us. And, and this story, this kingdom theology, that God's kingdom is announced by Jesus. And we are invited to participate, to join in, to restore heaven and earth together, to bring about all the God colours and God flavours that we were talking about last week. We're invited to participate. To see all things be restored. And that's a story that's exciting. That's a story that we can participate in, that we can buy into. That's a story that we can live in. You see, when we live in the, that smaller gospel, we become quite small. We become quite narrow. And it, it dictates how we read scripture. It dictates how we, this story that we live in kind of has an impact on how we, how we understand things. And this great example, Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And this is a very familiar verse. It's one that kind of gets quoted a lot, particularly if someone's having a, going through a difficult time. We can, someone can go, oh yeah, but we, you know, God works all things for good for those who love him. And it, it, there is truth, absolutely, in that. Because we believe that God works in all situations to bring about good. And that, this is what this scripture says, and we absolutely believe that. But it still has this sort of flavour of, well, it's about privilege. Like, you know, those of us who are saved, those of us who are in this relationship with God, God's going to make sure nothing bad happens to us. And I think evidence says that that's not always the case. But God will use the challenges. God will use the suffering to bring good in all situations. However, in your Bible, you'll see this footnote. And then it says, or... Now, what's going on here is the Bible is... This part of the Bible, Romans, is actually written in Greek. And so as people have tried to translate it, they, they're kind of trying to figure out what Paul was getting at. They've got the words, but it's not... You're trying to understand what's, what exactly is Paul saying, because there's different ways of translating the words and the tenses and the conjunctions and all that sort of stuff. And it says, or, which means there's an alternative way of translating this passage. It says, or that all things work together for good to those who love God. Or... That in all things, God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. So this verse can mean, look, if, if you love God, God's going to make sure everything works out well for you. Or it can mean God invites you to work together with him to bring good in all situations. One is a bit of a gospel of privilege. 
The second is a gospel of participation. And we are invited to join in. You see, we are not just people who believe in this story. This isn't just a story that happened thousands of years ago. That we kind of go, well, I believe it, and I don't believe it, or I don't believe it. or This isn't just a story we get to believe in. This is a story we get to participate in. We are people who participate in this story. Not just people who believe in this story. This story is still being told. We can trace our spiritual heritage back to Jesus sat on a hill with his disciples saying, now go and tell the world. And they will have gone and told people who've told people who've told people who've told people who've told people. And it ends up with you on an alpha course or you in a conversation with a friend or you in a church service or whatever. And someone tells you that this is who God is and that you are loved and that you are known and God wants to be in relationship with you. And the way your life has been doesn't have to be how it will always be. Your future doesn't have to be defined by your past. And God is a God of liberation and love who wants to know us and love us and heal us and restore us and save us from who we've become and from the hell that we live in. See, we're not just people who believe in this story. We are people who participate in this story. This story is still being told. We are still passing on that story. We are still living out this kingdom. We are still working to see things restored and renewed to bring about the purposes of God. You see, we tell this story with our lives every day. And that's what 365 is about. That's what we're getting at. In the, This isn't just something we come and remind ourselves of on a Sunday or sing songs about on a Sunday. This is something that we do everywhere we are. We get to be people who participate everywhere we are, every day, every place, every one of us, however insignificant you feel. Every one of us gets to tell this story with our lives, this story of hope, this story of reconciliation, this story of restoration, this story of love, this story of God with us this story of salvation we get to tell this story every day with our lives but I think sometimes we get stuck sometimes this story that we live in if we believe if we've kind of been living in the titanic gospel then actually maybe maybe we just thought it was all about being saved and that moment of conversion you know I remember being a teenager I'm being quite frustrated that my moment of conversion, my story, my testimony was quite so dull. Grew up in the church, went to church every Sunday, one of those Sundays. They gave a response for who wants to make Jesus Lord of their life. And I went, yeah, yeah, I guess this is my Sunday. And I went forward and did it. You know, it's not a, it's not a very exciting story, is it? When, particularly when you kind of encounter some other people who go, like, oh, my life was like this. And I was, I was here and then I had this near-death experience and then Jesus showed up and he saved me. And I went, well, whatever, now you save me from that God, whatever it is. I'm going to belong to you and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to love you. And you hear these stories sometimes. You go, oh my goodness, what would I give for a testimony like that? What an amazing testimony of mine is so dull. But you see, I was brought into the mindset that actually our story was our testimony of how we became a Christian. Because if you live in the Titanic gospel, well then, that moment of conversion, that's it. That's the, that's the most exciting part of your story. 
So let me ask you today, is the moment of your conversion still the most exciting part of your life as a Christian? Or are you telling that story every day? Are you living out this story of healing and restoration, of relationship with the God who created us, who's doing this work of transformation in us, who's bringing that work of transformation and renewal and restoration all around us, who's calling us to take steps of faith and courage, to speak to people, to love people, to get out there. You know, people like Matt who are on the front line and and living this out, living out this story in exciting ways. That is, you know, what is it that God's calling us to do in your workplace or in your family or in your neighborhood, in your community? Are there, are there things that we're being called to do? Are we living out a life of faith, of courage, of love, of hope, of truth, of beauty? You know, our conversion doesn't have to be the pinnacle of our Christian experience. It's just a step on the way. We get to live this story out every day. There's this quote by a poet called Walt Whitman. It says, the powerful play goes on and you can contribute a verse. What will your verse be? The powerful play goes on and you can contribute a verse. We are called to live out the next chapter in this story that is being told in scripture and we are invited to participate, to be giants of the gospel, to be heroes of the faith, to be people who are living out this gospel of truth, this gospel of love, this gospel of forgiveness, this gospel of transformation, reconciliation. We are called to be people who are living this out. The powerful play goes on and you are invited to contribute a verse What will your verse be? But it occurs to me that maybe the story we tell about ourselves is stopping us living in the fullness of God's story. Maybe that narrative that we've put on our life is the very thing that stops us living in the fullness of what God has saved us from. Maybe we're still kind of bound by some of this stuff. Maybe we've done the spiritual act of salvation, but we haven't had the work of salvation done in us. Maybe the cross has done something for us, but it's not done something in us. Maybe we've been saved, but we haven't been transformed. Maybe we're still living in that old narrative of not good enough. Maybe we're living in that still that old narrative of, oh yeah, but I've blown it. I've missed my chance. I messed up. I failed. And this is what we saw. I was talking, I think, last week, the week before, about the prodigal son. And we saw this, didn't we? About, you know, the prodigal son was this guy who had taken his half of the fortune before his dad had died and said, I want it now. And, you know, which is ultimate act of betrayal really and and then he goes off and he squanders all the money and then he's feeding pigs and he's wanting to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs because he's so hungry and he's lost everything and he's kind of going oh but I am I've got so much guilt about this and I've got so much shame I've wasted everything I don't deserve anything but you know what the servants in my dad's house live better than I do maybe I can just go back and be a servant he had this narrative of failed and disqualified We know the story, don't we? He's going back and his dad sees him in the distance because he's waiting for him. And he jumps the gate and he runs to him. 
And the son's kind of been narrating this, practicing his narration of like, oh yeah, oh dad, you know, I've messed up and I'm really sorry. I don't deserve to be your son anymore, but I just, I'd love to be a servant in your household because your servants live better than I'm living and I'm so sorry and I've messed everything up. He had this whole speech practiced and perfected and performed. And what we see in the scripture is he barely gets into it and his father cuts him off and hugs him. He goes, no, you're my son. And he says, go and get the robe and put it on him. Go and get the ring and put it on his finger. Go and put the, go and get shoes and put them on his feet. Go and get the fashion calf because we're going to have a party because my son has come home. The prodigal son comes with this story of guilt and shame and not deserving and failed and disqualified. But there's this other son in the story as well that sometimes we miss. And his other son's the son who stayed, the son who worked, was faithful, was obedient, the son who kept showing up every day, never ran off with the money. And he hears his party going, and he goes, what's going on? And one of the servants says, oh, your brother's come home. And he's furious. And he won't go into the party. And his dad comes out to see him. And his brother said, no, you see that you can't do this, dad, because he took his money and he went off and he wasted it and he doesn't deserve it. And I've always been here. I've always behaved myself. I've always done the right thing. I've always been faithful. And you've never given me anything. You've never thrown me a party. You see, and he's living in this narrative of pride, self-righteousness, frustrated. He's judgmental. He's entitled. And he's overlooked. And that's his narrative. And the father's going, no, no, son, it's all yours. You see, for the prodigal son, the father says, no, no, your story is different from the one that you think it is. Let me tell you, you are my child. You are loved. You are forgiven. There is grace so much for this. I love you. But the father also corrects the narrative of the brother, the self-righteous, proud one. He goes, no, no, you are my child. You are loved. You're already enough. You don't have to earn it. And it's all yours. Stop living in this poverty mentality of you've never given me anything and I've always done the right thing and I've never. It's all yours. You see, the father changes the narrative. And we see this in another story in the Bible. Back in Genesis, right at the beginning, but kind of like... Chapter 32, this story, but there's this story, so one of the first stories in the Bible, and there's this story of this guy called Jacob, and he's born a twin, but he's the second of the twins, he's the second to come out, so the firstborn is his brother, and his brother's kind of big and strong and hairy and, and dominating, whatever, and Jacob's just a bit pathetic and a bit weak, and his mummy's boy, and doesn't like getting cold, doesn't like getting muddy, doesn't like getting wet, and... And what he does is he tricks his father because his father's blind. And when his father's going to give his birthright before he dies, he tricks him and he pretends to be Esau and he puts hair on himself and he goes in and he tricks him. He pretends to be Esau and he goes, no, dad. And he goes, who is it? He goes, it's Esau, your son. He goes, I want the birthright. And his dad blesses him with the birthright. And then Jacob flees and Esau comes home and he goes to his dad for the birthright. And his dad goes, no, no, I've already, I've already given you the birthright. And Esau goes, no, it wasn't me. So Esau's mad, right? Jacob's run because he's a coward. So he's run. He's got out of there. He's left the country. And what we see with this story is years later, Jacob's gone off and he's got married and he's got a family and he's been blessed. And, but now he has to travel back to his homeland. He has to come and meet Esau again. 
And like a true coward, he um, sends all these possessions across, and then he sends all his servants across, then he sends his wife across, and he sends his kids across until it's just him, the last person that's going to meet his brother. And it says this in chapter 32, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now you're right, it's a strange story. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Because Jacob is always about the blessing, right? He always wants a blessing. So the man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. The reason why I love this story, I mean, it is weird on so many levels. So this guy that he's wrestling with seems to be God in some form. And then he goes, oh, yeah, well, God realized that he couldn't overpower Jacob, who's this weakling coward of a man. He goes, oh, let me go. Very weird. And then Jacob goes, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And then, Jacob, then God says to him, so what's your name? And what's beautiful about this is the last time we see Jacob in this story being asked what his name is, he says Esau, which was a lie. He cheated, he lied, he deceived. And what's really interesting is he answered this time, Jacob. But Jacob, the name Jacob means liar, deceiver, cheat. So this isn't just a casual responding of a question. This is God has brought him back to his moment of dishonesty and deception. And said, so what's your name again? And this time he tells the truth. This time he goes, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a liar, I'm a deceiver, I'm a cheat. A real moment of confession for Jacob. And God says to him, not anymore. Jacob's not your name anymore. No longer are you a liar, a deceiver, and a cheat. Now I will call you Israel. It's beautiful, isn't it? Jacob was still living in this narrative of you're a liar, you're a deceiver, and you're a cheat. You're a nobody, you're a hopeless, you're, he's a coward. He doesn't want to go, go and face his brother again. And he comes face to face with God and says, God says, that's not who you are. That's forgiven. That's forgotten. Now I'm giving you a new name. What are the things that stop you living in the fullness of who God is calling you to be? What, is the, what are the names that you still speak over yourself that disqualify you? That, that mean you're not good enough, that tell you that you're not deserving. Or tell you they've always been deserving and God just hasn't seen it yet and God's overlooked you and God's rejected you or God's not recognising or blessing you in the way that he should be doing. What are the things you've spoken over yourself that get in the way? Because I would love each of us to have a conversation with God to say today and say, who do you say I am? The powerful play goes on. 
and you can contribute a verse. What will your verse be? What story are you living in? Let's take a moment to pray, to listen to God. Lord, we want to be people who live out your story and our story in your likeness, our story in your kingdom. And we want to do that every day, everywhere, every one of us. And Lord, we're sorry for all the times we've spoken stuff over ourselves or, or believe the things that have been spoken over us that aren't of you. And Lord, we invite you to speak a new name over us. We invite you to liberate us from the stories that have held us back and invite us into the new story you want to tell through our lives. Lord, as we worship, as we sing, as we kneel, as we pray, as we walk, as we wait, we invite your spirit. We invite your spirit. Amen.